hands up if you're hungry. Should we have a special meeting just downstairs for those who put their hand up who are hungry? Because if you're not hungry, the rest of you can just sit. No, I'm kidding. If you just think about this for a moment. If you really are hungry, and there's something inside here that says this morning, God, I need, I need more of you. I can't just go to another meeting. Can you stand to your feet? When you stood to your feet, just close your eyes and put your hands up. I know I've said this before, but every nation on earth recognized this as a posture of surrender. doesn't matter what language you speak. Jesus, we believe in you. We believe. We believe in you over what we see in the natural. We believe in you over what we hear with our ears. We believe in you over what we feel in our emotions. And this morning we align ourselves with heaven and we say, God, we thank you that your plan was that your purpose would be released through us, your church, the ecclesia here on planet Earth. And we, Lord, this morning, we just thank you and we ask that you would speak to us through revelation, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened and opened up so that we can know you better and so we can know the hope to which you've called us, so we can be everything that you have called us to be and more. <laughs> And as Mark comes and shares, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fall afresh on him. Lord, that you would, that Holy Ghost, that you would move through him. We thank you for his life. We thank you for the grace that rests on him. And Holy Spirit, we say, please move powerfully in this place today. In Jesus' name. While you're stood, let's just welcome Mark right now as he comes. Thank you, Lord. Feels like you're at Bethel in Reading here. I haven't been able to go there for a few years and really miss it. And uh, um, man, you come in here and man, I thought I was in Reading in the presence of the Lord. So, you guys, it feels good to be family. <laughs> so, hallelujah. Um, I'm excited what the Lord's going to do this morning. Um, grab my. Um, was good yesterday. I, I, I was waiting on the Lord this morning, and I just sense he wants to do some miracles and healings this morning. So when we close the service, we're going to do something special and a little different like we do in India and in Nepal. And I've asked Scott and John to join me for that. So, um, but we'll get to that in a bit here. Um, sensing, just getting some words of knowledge, too, and sent something with the left shoulder this morning, and my brother comes up to me and says, yesterday, he was healed. He, in 2017, you were in a truck accident, and 
Stand up and show them that shoulder, what, what the Lord's done. Look at that. The Lord completely healed his shoulder, so praise God. We're, so the Lord's already moving before we get started here, so that's good. So, um, so we had a good time uh, teaching. Yesterday we talked about uh, the authority given to mankind. If you weren't able to make it, that's the first session. That book is in the back there. Um, the second session, I talked about humility and the glory of God, the connection, how Christ-like humility is connected to the glory of God coming down to the earth. I really feel it's probably the number one thing, and, and I think some of you, after hearing yesterday what we shared, it's the number one thing that's going to attract the glory of God to the earth and staying in that place of Christ-like humility. And I could tell you guys are pretty hungry because... I think we brought 32 of those books, and we're down to three. So if we run out of those books today, there's a sign-up sheet. Scott said I can ship them to his house, have them in a couple weeks, and uh, we'll, he'll get them into your hands, okay? So if we run out, don't worry. We'll get some more, okay? Um, some other books, um, our thickest book here. Religion or relationship, which one do you want? I talk about, first part of this book is how a, a religious spirit progresses in a Christian's life or in a, or a church. How, how to avoid the religious spirit. So the first five chapters are about that. Then we, we give the alternative, it's relationship. And then one of the first teachings is what I taught yesterday morning, humility and the glory of God. That's in chapter 6 here. So it's another way to get that teaching if you want. Um, then we talk about the person and the partnership of the Holy Spirit. How do you get into a relationship, a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit and partner with him for signs and wonders and miracles? That's, the, I think, the next chapter. So check this book out. It's usually 15 bucks, but it's on sale for 10 bucks. So, so we've got some of those if, if you want that. Uh, it also talks about, like, humility and the glories as well. So um, I spent a lot of time equipping people in healing ministry and training pastors and leaders, especially overseas, a lot in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, in India and Nepal, but we also do it here stateside, and a lot more since the COVID travel ban, so uh, a lot more stateside traveling. Um, but some of the, some people I say, well, what do you do when you pray and nothing happens, or you pray for somebody and they get healed and then they lose their healing? Anybody, that happened to any of you here? None. You always get instantly healed. Okay, that's really good. Well, forget this book then. You don't need it. You guys have already overcome the roadblocks to healing. So, but if you haven't, if there's one or two in here that haven't quite overcome all the roadblocks to healing, uh, this book was published by Global Awakening. Randy Clark wrote the foreword, um, Overcoming Roadblocks to Healing. Um, I, I teach on these things a lot and. It's an honor to have uh, Randy Clark's ministry publish it for us and get the word out and promote it as well. Um, but I talk about, in this book, different things, different obstacles. We're going to talk about one of the biggest obstacles to healing today. 
And it's only in Western Europe and North America or where that Western mindset has been imported to the mission field. And it's overcoming the negative influence of Greek philosophy on Western Christianity. A lot of people don't even have the foggiest idea about that influence that's in Western Christianity. I started by writing it in this book, and then we've been teaching it and seen phenomenal results. So Lord laid in my heart to write a book, and I didn't know how I was going to have time, but COVID travel ban, when you're stuck at home for a few months, you have time to write books. So last year, I released uh, a book back there called, oh, well, here it is, uh, The Influence of Greek Philosophy on Western Christianity. We get into the history of it, um, the effects of it, what, compare, compare what is brought down by that influence of Greek philosophy to what does the Bible say? What did the early church say about it? What did Jesus say about it? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So that book is available in the back as well. Um, and so, yeah, check out the table back there. Um, also going to talk, oh, let me just, uh, our, our magazines are back there, and they're free for the taking. If, if any of you'd like to um, receive our quarterly magazine, we have teachings in these magazines, um, we have reports from the mission field, like when Scott and John join us, and, and we get a lot of photos of the great miracles that happen, follow the believers. So um, if you're, you're interested in getting that, we send it out free of charge by email and also by mailing. So there's a sign up on the back, grab a copy. Our latest one um, just reports of all the miracles we've been seeing as we've been traveling stateside here earlier this year. Uh, is in this particular magazine, so check that out. And uh, I think we're ready to roll. Want to get right into this message because I feel it's important. Um, I feel um, what we're experiencing in the United States today. Um, a lot of the effects of it come from the negative influence of Greek philosophy on Western Christianity. There's tremendous, you know, when I, when I write this book, and I wrote this book, and I talk about some of the leaders that brought in that influence to Western Christianity, they also brought a lot of good things into it. I'm not going to have time to get into and go on those rabbit trails of all the good things that came out of Greek philosophy. Some good things came out of that, but also some negative things. So this book kind of examines the good, the bad, and the ugly of this influence and in Western Christianity. And I want to zero in on some of the things that are impacting our country and the nations in a negative way. And we're seeing the fruit of it right now play out in all over the country. And, and, and we've got to change. Some of that mindset has to change. Some of it, it's good. I mean, we, we're, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The good stuff, hold on to. The negative stuff, hey, let's get, let's get, I mean, the word of God is, is what keeps us on track. And so we want to compare these religious traditions. Here's what I feel. I get to travel the nations. I've been in, I think, like 23 different nations. And usually my wife and I, if it wasn't for this COVID travel ban, we'd be overseas six times a year probably. 
uh, mostly to India. Nepal, the, the nation of Bhutan, which is strictly a Buddhist nation, was opening up to us right before this travel ban hit. We had tremendous favor after doing a leadership conference with uh, pastors from Bhutan, bringing them into India. Um, we spent a lot of time in the German-speaking nations. Uh, the same publisher that publishes a lot of Bill Johnson and Randy Clark's books, a great friend of ours, Andreas Berger, who runs Grain Press in Germany. He got a hold of our Humility book, and then he's translated four of our books into German. And we've probably, since 2014, when those books were released, um, we've been in probably 50 or 60 different churches, uh, many of them multiple times. Uh, so that keeps us real busy. And then also, we are involved with a refugee ministry in East Germany um, that we've seen a lot of Afghans and Iranians come to Christ, get baptized. The ref in fact, this, this particular minister has baptized over 1,000 refugees in the last, uh, last 10 years since he started this ministry. And so we partner with them monthly, even supporting them. And from this end, they... they I just they're, they're missing us. They want us to get back over. We're missing them because every trip we go to Germany, we spend time with these guys, and uh, it just it's an awesome privilege. So, um, but let's as we get to travel the the different nations, you can see okay, this culture, you know, there's certain hindrances here. This culture has different things. Each culture is different. What I've noticed as we've traveled Western Europe only and North America is this influence of Greek philosophy that's really what I call uh, brought a Western thought into, a Western mindset into uh, uh, Christianity. And I believe, to be honest with you, I believe most Christians in North America are more influenced by Greek philosophy than they are by the Bible. And let me explain why here in a little bit, okay? And this is why this book came out. So let's, let's just start with some of the, the basics. Let's talk first of all. Um, I'll go through some of the things in this book, just kind of whet your appetite for it. And if, if you desire more, get the book. The book will have much more than I can share today. Um, so the first section of the book, first several chapters, we talk about the history of Greek philosophy dating back even to the time of Jesus in the early church. And that influence was starting to come in even back in Jesus' time. And some of the early church, they warned us about this influence. Uh, the, I'm going to, in fact, I'll read here in a little bit. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle John warns us about this influence coming into the church. Um, where did some of this influence come? Well, Plato, um, Plato and uh, other Greek philosophers taught that there was a natural spiritual divide. This is the big, big part of what we talk about in this book. If in this Western thought, they taught that there was a distinct separation between the spiritual and visible realm and the natural realm, and the pre the. The, the realm that they were focused on was the spiritual realm. They thought the physical realm was immaterial. So most of the focus was on the invisible realm. And they believed there's no way the two realms could ever connect or 
something could happen from the spiritual invisible realm coming into this natural realm. Um, that's some of the things that they taught. And, and so I'll get into depth, like, what kind of beliefs come out of that mindset? Because Jesus never taught that. The Jews don't. Uh, the Jewish people did not embrace that kind of mindset. They don't embrace that kind of mindset in Asia and Africa unless Western missionaries have come there and got them into thinking like that. And the thing is, you go to places like India where we minister mostly to Hindus and Muslims, and there's no separating the two realms. And heaven somehow always comes down and invades the physical realm in those meetings. Some of the, um, the greatest miracles, healing signs, and wonders are in those nations because why? There's no separating the two realms. The two realms are connected as one. Even the Native American Indians... They, they, there's no separating the two realms. They're connected as one. We go to some of these Native, Amin, Native American Indian reservations and the presence of God shows up and their miracles, signs, and wonders. Uh, it just seems like it's taken to a whole new level, whereas this obstacle in Western Europe and North America, the miracles are happening. But I, I feel... We, we've got to get rid of this blockade because they, the Lord wants this stuff to flow even more. On a regular basis in India, Jesus is appearing in our outreaches. Ever since Randy Clark prayed over me in 2007, I didn't feel a thing when he prayed over me. I just received it by faith. Next thing I go and I told Shamila, you know, I believe this is a turning point for our ministry. When we head to India this next trip, Something's going to happen that's going to be like a turning point. Well, shortly after I said that, my wife and I, we were working out at the gym. We come back home, and my daughter and her friend were just, something had happened in the house while we were gone. I said, what, what, what happened? I said, an angel, two stories tall, just walked through our house. And they were describing what he looked like. I said, what did he look like? He said, my daughter says, he looked like Elvis Presley. I said, how do you know what Elvis Presley looks like? Well, I saw that angel a little bit later. He looked more like George Washington. So, I mean, they come, heaven comes in different manifestations, different ways. But we went over to India, and ever since the next outreach we did, we saw 11,500 people come to Christ. Many of them saw Jesus face to face. Many of them saw angels face to face. Many of them were feeling invisible hand go into their body, rip the sickness out, or rearrange their body parts. By the time we were done in this city that was having, we target cities that are troubled areas. By the time we were done in this city, Muslims and Hindus were killing each other in this city. That's why we went there to bring the Prince of Peace there. By the time we were done with this outreach, the churches were filling up. The media, television, radio, newspapers came out and say, truly, the true God has shaken our city. I mean, it's pretty cool when you're preaching and Jesus is going out door to door. I mean, we had one, 
One lady, she's laying in her bed dying. Her name was Neha. She was dying of jaundice and liver problems. Laying in her bed, Jesus walks through the walls of her house into her bedroom, reaches down and embraces her and tells her to come to our, our outreach. Told her where it was located. She comes out and she's instantly healed by Jesus. It's pretty cool when Jesus shows. I mean, he's going door to door for you to promote your meeting. And then he takes over the meeting and hijacks it, so you, don't, you, you can't say much. I mean, this has been a regular occurrence in India, and then it's, some of it's happening in Nepal as well. But what's going on here is, in these countries, there's no dividing the spiritual realm and the physical realm. The two realms are connected as one. And I could go on for hours and tell you all kinds of stories like that of just what's happening in India alone. And just even on our last trip. But I, I want to get through this teaching. So, But I'm believing by sharing this stuff that the Western mindset, we're going to change that where the two realms are connected as one. You might say, well, I believe that there's an invisible realm and a spiritual realm. And I believe there's a physical realm, a material realm. I believe in that. But the thing is, do you, do you, is your life show it? It's one thing to say, yeah, I believe that and make mental assent to it. It's another thing, how do you conduct your affairs in your life then? Do you conduct your affairs in your life as if all focused on the physical realm, especially when a pandemic hits and you're just focused on, you have no idea what's happening in the invisible realm? We've got to be connected to both realms, people. You know, this influence of Greek philosophy became so strong that by 150 A.D., one-third of the church, the Christians, were Gnostics. You might say, what's a Gnostic? A Gnostic, or have you heard of agnostic? Okay, a Gnostic is somebody whose focus is totally the spiritual realm. Everything is the spiritual realm. They're disconnected from the, the physical realm. I know a lot of Christians that have a similar mindset. It's all about revival. It's all about getting after Jesus. It's all about church and, and evangelism. We shouldn't be involved in government. We shouldn't be involved in media. We shouldn't be involved in education. Well, then what happens? We disconnect from the physical realm, and our whole focus is just the spiritual realm, and going for revival, guess what? Evil sets itself up in government. Evil sets itself up in our media. Evil sets itself up in our education system and hijacks it and takes it over and tells us the way we're going to conduct that. Right. Same with arts and entertainment and business and, and big tech and big pharma. What happens? We're disconnected from those realms. We're just focused on the spiritual. That's an example of a Gnostic. Somebody who's just totally focused on the spiritual. Now, an agnostic is somebody that's just totally focused on the physical realm. They believe, oh, maybe there is a God, maybe there isn't a God, doesn't matter to me. It's eat, drink, and be merry. Everything's just, you know, this physical realm. And we as Christians, most Christians, tend to focus on one realm or the other, to the exclusion of the other. We've got to start operating and focusing where the two realms are connected as one. Now let's read what John said to the early church. And I, I really believe, by the way, I'm just going to have to be blunt. 
This influence has made the church of Jesus Christ in America weak and feckless. I even had a dream about that. Um, just that we've become feckless. I, I didn't even know what the word feckless was when, when it was spoken by a Christian leader that said, we've been feckless. I realized, you know, that's powerless. We've been powerless. And I think some of that has to do with this influence. Here's what John said. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and now already is in the world. You know, I used to read that for years. I said, well, of course, as a Christian, I believe Jesus Christ came in the flesh, you know. But it wasn't, I didn't really understand those verses until I started understanding the influence of Greek philosophy that was in that time period. The Greeks believed there was no way Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, there was no way a spiritual being could come into this physical realm because the two realms were disconnected. That's why John addressed and said, if you can't say Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh has come in the flesh, you're not of God. It's not of the Spirit of God. But if you can confess that Christ, God himself, literally humbled himself and he came from the invisible realm into this physical realm, then you are of the Spirit of God. And for those who cannot confess that, it says this is the Spirit of Antichrist, which is already here. Well, it wasn't so strong at that time period. Even 150 A.D., it didn't really become a stronghold till 400 A.D. What happened in 400 A.D.? There's a great man of God came along who did tremendous things. His name was Augustine. Augustine, found, you know, very influential in the Catholic Church, but yet a great and mighty God, a man of God. He did tremendous things, and I'm not going to sit there and say everything he did was wrong. No, he did some phenomenal things, and he loved Jesus. When he gave his life to Jesus, before that, he, he uh, you know, he, he was immoral. He womanized her, you know, somewhat. Uh, he had some immoral relationship. He w I'm not sure if I know how to pronounce this, uh, um, but he was into a, before he came to Christ, uh, something called like mechanism or something like that. He believed there was two gods, and one god did evil, and one god did good. Then when he came to Christ, he changed that mindset to believe in only one god, but he believed that one God did both good and evil. And he made statements like this because he was a Greek philosopher. He was into Neoplatonism, which is the reworkings of Plato's ideas. And you just, uh, we get in depth on just the history of the effects of what did they believe? What was Neoplatonism? What was this mechanism? Um, much more in depth here than I'm going to get into today. But what he did is he believed, he said things like this. He said, everything that happens in this life, this is a quote, everything that happens in this life is the will of God. And then he went on to say even further, and he said, and, and, and don't, uh, don't question it. 
Don't say it's of men or of angels, fallen angels, demon spirits. He said everything that happens is the will of God. Another person that embraced that mindset later on, centuries later, was John Calvin. And out of that, you know, Calvinism very influential. And there's good things in Calvinism. John Calvin did some excellent things. But that mindset of everything is just God is sovereign and everything that happens on this earth is his will. Well, if God and, and also that God is in complete control of this earth, if God is in complete control of this earth, if you face reality, he's doing a terrible job. Wouldn't you say <laughs> the thing is, we talked about authority yesterday. Who did he put in charge of this earth? You and I. The finger needs to be pointed right here. The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he's given to the children of men. Psalms 115, verse 16. If this earth is a mess, don't blame God. He's not your problem. He's the answer to your problem. Extreme sovereignty has caused the church to be passive. And the thing is, we won't resist the enemy. We won't stand up and use our authority if we believe everything's God's will. It's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to rise up and use your authority, especially in a time like this? Or are you going to be passive and say, well, whatever will be, will be. It's God's will. We've got we've to face reality. What's going on right now? So Augustine was the one influential for really causing this influence of Greek philosophy to come into Western Christianity. He was a Greek scholar. Very intellectual. Many people were drawn to him at his time period because of his influence and his intellect. But the one problem, I think, is, is bringing that influence and merging it with Christianity. And what, what was the focus? Well, a big part of the focus, um, a big part of the focus is the spiritual realm because that's the way the Greeks thought. What about the vows they made back then? I talk, have chapters on just the vows that they made back then. I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, one of the things that you can take scripture out of context and make it fit your theology. What about Job? Talk a lot about Job because Job thought God was doing all these things. The Bible says Satan went out and afflicted Job and put all those things on him in Job 2.7. But throughout the book of Job, Job's blaming God for doing that. A lot of people that are influenced by Augustine or Calvin believe God's the source of their problem. He's the one doing these bad things or allowing these things. But guess what? God had to correct Job's theology. In Job 40, verse 8, he said, How long will you justify yourself and condemn me? And Job said, oh, no, I've really blown it. He repented of that mindset. He forgave his friends. And it says in the end of Job, God restored, what, three times as much back to Job? And it, that affliction only lasted nine months. But how much theology comes out of the book of Job? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord our God. That's what Job said. You know, that's quoted often in funerals. Oh, God took our baby. You know, our baby died of cancer, only had leukemia, only three years old, 
or God took our mother, you know, our young mother. We don't have a mother anymore. It's blessed be the Lord God. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And it becomes a passivity in the body of Christ that causes us just to accept anything that comes our way. Um, a scripture that's often quoted out of context, Romans 8, verse 28. It says, And all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Their belief is, all, see, all things work together for good to them that love God. They don't quote the whole scripture. Notice how the first part of that verse started. And when there's a word and starting that verse, look at the prior verses. Verses 26 and 27 is talking about praying in the Holy Spirit, letting the Holy Spirit uh, make intercession through you as you're praying in tongues, praying in the Holy Ghost. And then what happens? Jesus, he makes intercession according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit makes intercession according to the will of God when we're praying in the Holy Ghost, when we're praying in the Spirit. And all things work together for good to them that love God. I can tell you all kinds of examples of negative things working together for good when we've been praying in the Spirit. I shared that with some, I was in a, a church uh, kind of that leaned heavy towards Calvinism, and, and I was bringing this up at the Bible study, and the guy didn't really like to hear it. And the pastor speaks up, well, maybe next time we need to let Mark speak here. You know, he was a real nice guy. We'd play football together and just uh, get along real good. But some of the people, they were so ingrained, and how dare you think that all things don't work together for the good. It was good learning just to be around that kind of influence and understand that kind of thinking for me, especially when I was writing some of these things. But I have a track. I just printed it up. Scott printed it up for me called The Purpose of the Holy Spirit and Speaking in Tongues. What's the purpose of it? Find out what the Word of God says, but I talk a lot about my own personal testimony. Where I am today has a lot to do with Romans 8.28. And the speaking in tongues part, too, by the way. Because my life was radically changed from somebody that you get in front of a crowd, I'd stutter if I had to speak. I, was, I didn't stutter normally, but if I got in front and had to give a speech, my whole desire was only to play, how, see how, how much I could play football at a junior college level. And I had no goals beyond that. But when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, all things worked together for my good. And I got called into a worldwide ministry. My testimony's in here, so grab that if you want to know and understand more about the purpose of the Holy Spirit and, and praying in tongues. What's the purpose of that? So um, let's go on a little further. So if, if we have that mindset that all things work together for good, well, what, what do you do with things like sex slave trade in Nepal? They go in and they kidnap young women, especially when they had that major earthquake, that was a time when they just went in and kidnapped many people who had lost their homes, many girls, and they bring them across into India and they sell them into the sex slave trade. If they don't work properly, they, they kill them. They're found dead alongside the road. How does that work together for good if you really face reality? There's nothing good coming out of that. 
Bible says all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. What if as a Christian, I have no desire to really fit into his purpose and his will for my life? Will all things work together for my good? No. Be yet, there's a mindset. No, all things work together for good, brother. No, we got to get back to, let's, let's interpret scripture with scripture. Amen? And let's rise up with authority. Um, one scripture, it says in James 4, verse 7, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Well, if I believe everything is the will of God, why would I resist the devil? Jesus must have been a really disobedient son. Because the Bible says in 1 John 3, 8, he, he was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. And he said, pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, uh, if everything is the will of God, then why would you bother praying that? Why would you bother resisting? Uh, it's sad to say because of this influence in Western Christianity, there's a lot of Christians... They're resisting the will of God, and they're submitting to the will of Satan. Oh, brother, I would never do that. Well, is your life lining up with what the Word says, or just religious tradition? See, one thing that's not mentioned when you get into this kind of mindset that came from Augustine, and also from Calvin, and even Luther was influenced by this somewhat, um, a lot of our Western church leaders, which brought tremendous things. And I talk about some of that in the Greek philosophy book. But the thing is, if, if, you, don't, if you don't believe and, and there's no emphasis on demon spirits and Satan, that God's doing both good and bad like Augustine uh, believed, then guess what? You're just going to try to ignore the devil and go away. See, Job... In the whole book of Job, Satan was the one that afflicted him, but yet he blames God, the whole entire book of Job, until God corrected his theology. There's no mention of Satan or demons, because this is the first book of the Bible written. He had no idea about demons or Satan, but we do. And they can cause some harm. Not everything happening on planet Earth and in Washington, D.C. is the will of God. Amen? Oh, sorry, that slipped. So what were some of the vows that came out? There was, here's some of the vows that came out during that time period with Augustine, the Augustine monks, is the vows of poverty. We, we addressed a little bit of that yesterday. Why did they have a vow of poverty? The vow of poverty is because money is something natural, and the mindset was the more poor you are, the more humble you are. So they take oaths of poverty because they wanted to be disconnected from the physical realm, everything on the spiritual realm. We shared yesterday, Proverbs 22, 4, by humility and fear of the Lord come riches, honor, and life. It's just the opposite. Humility actually attracts wealth, so you can be a wealth generator. Not a wealth consumer, a wealth generator. Amen? We talk a lot about that in, in our books where we talk about humility. So why did that come out? Because it's a disconnect. Vows of chastity, abstinence from sex. Here's what 
because of the bad experience Augustine had with being immoral before he came to Christ, he said the most corrupt desires mankind can have is sexual passions. Well, Bible says be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> if, if that is the most corrupt and sinful desires, how do you be fruitful and multiply? have a whole chapter on that mindset and what it's led to. It's led to pornography and it's led to addiction and pornography. It's led to all kinds of sexual perversion. Marriages falling apart. Why? Because of that mindset of, ooh, we don't want to talk about that in church, brother. That's, you don't talk about sex. <laughs> sex outside of marriage is very harmful. Sex inside of marriage brings a husband and a wife and it makes them one. Spirit, mind, and body. There's power released there. I, I'm not going to do a marriage seminar on that right now, okay? You have to get the book if you want to know more about that stuff, okay? Another thing that came out from this, and why, why was that? It, sex is something in the physical realm where their focus was, why did they take this vow of chastity? They wanted to be focused just spiritually. How much, homosexuality, how much homosexuality comes out of that? A lot. So what about another thing that came out of asceticism? What's asceticism? It's the belief in physical suffering. Have you heard of Paul's thorn in the flesh? Where did that teaching come about? I'm talking about the, tr the false teaching on Paul's thorn in the flesh we got to go by what the Word says. We have a whole chapter in this book about Paul's thorn in the flesh and also this Greek philosophy book when we talk about asceticism. What does the Word say about that? I'm not going to teach on that right now, but why did that belief come? Because they believed if they suffered physically, they would be more closer to God, they'd be more spiritual. It was all about being a Gnostic, being disconnected from the physical realm and being connected only to the spiritual realm. How much influence do those vows still have in church today? A lot. Get the book and you'll see. Okay. Um, what did Jesus, what did Jesus say and what did the early church say about this natural spiritual divide? We need to go by what the word says, right? We read it yesterday. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 19. Let me read that to you again. I'm going to read it out of the Amplified. Here's what Jesus said about the natural spiritual divide. Was, was there such a thing as a natural spiritual divide with Jesus in the early church? Matthew 16, 19. I'll give you the keys, authority of the kingdom of heaven... Whatever you bind, forbid, declare to be improper and unlawful on earth will have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose, permit, declare lawful on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. And we talked yesterday, and I'm not going to get in depth on that because we shared a lot of this yesterday when we were talking about authority, but it's a principle called mere imaging. And mere imaging is basically heaven being reflected onto planet earth. And I was sharing how women understand what it is to, to use a mirror. Guys might not understand that nearly as much. What a reflection, how to change yourself. My wife has a saying, if you don't like what you see, change it. Both in the mirror and first thing in the morning or, and also 
If you don't like what you're seeing happening in our nation, you're to rise up and use the keys to the kingdom of heaven and change. You can bind and forbid, and, and it'll already be bound and forbid in what? The invisible realm. You can be here on planet Earth. You can loosen the law in planet Earth certain things, and what will happen? It'll be loosened and allowed in the invisible realm. Something Plato said and Augustine is that the spiritual realm has preeminence. That is true. If we can affect the spiritual realm, um, just so you know, there's a book, this book, uh, you can tap into Christ healing's power. I, I have, how do you tap into Christ healing power? And I, chapter three, we talk about answers about demons for those that want to understand more about the demonic realm. Because we started seeing a lot of miracles when we started understanding the demonic realm. But the last two chapters in this book is setting the spiritual atmosphere for the miraculous. And here on planet Earth, there's things that we can do to affect the invisible realm and see a mighty move of God here in this physical realm, people. Just don't disconnect the two realms. See, yes, the spiritual realm, Augustine and Plato were dead on when they said, yes, the spiritual realm has preeminence. Just don't disconnect the two realms. You have power here in this physical realm to affect the invisible realm and bring heaven down to invade planet Earth. Amen? Amen. Jesus even prayed it. Matthew 6.10, he said, pray this way. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is he talking about? He's talking about, is there sickness and disease in heaven? Is there poverty in heaven? Is there demons attacking people? Is there sex slave trade going on? People starving to death in, in heaven right now? Jesus said, pray, thy will be done on this invisible, on this physical realm as it is in the invisible realm in heaven. There's the two realms connected as one. Jesus was not disconnected. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 Paul, the apostle, says, we walk by faith and not by sight. And the sight he's talking about is the five physical senses. We're not walking by what we can see, what we can hear, what we can feel. We're walking by a higher thing, faith which activates the creative miracle work and power of God. And what, when do you need faith? Well, let's say I, I, have, I need a financial miracle. And I pray, and it, the prayer is answered. Do I need faith for that prayer, for finances then? What if I need healing in my physical body? Somebody prays over me, I'm instantly healed. Do I need faith to be healed then? No. When is faith needed? When you don't have it manifested in this physical realm. And it's what can cause the creative miracle work and power of God to be manifest in this physical realm. See... Just those scriptures alone, those few scriptures show you that Jesus and the early church, they connected to the two realms as one, unlike Greek philosophy, unlike what Augustine taught. In fact, there was the early church leaders, there was a number of them that warned against that kind of influence coming, but people didn't heed it. And by 400 AD, that, that kind of influence came into the church very strong, especially in the Western church. Uh, chapter 10 in this book is actually the longest chapter, and it's called Politics with a Religious Humility and a Poverty Mindset, a, basically a false humility. It's one of the things that's destroying our nation. 
And I'm not going to get in depth and teach on that, but just a few things. You know, sometimes we as Christians, we get a hold of this false humility that says, oh, we don't want to offend anybody. We've got to really kind of tiptoe through the tulips. We want everybody to feel comfortable. doesn't matter where they're coming from. And, and we get to the place where sometimes it leads to compromise. Jesus, did he offend people? Some people, oh, we, you know, if we're really humble, we, we don't want to offend anybody. We've got to, you know, Jesus offended evil. He offended passivity. He offended the religious leaders of his day. His disciples called him out for it. One of the things that's destroying our nation right now is when a, the Christian voice can have so much influence in our nation, the way this government and different things run, is to back off and say, oh, we don't want to get involved with that, brother. Well, then who, 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 who calls the shots for us then? People with evil intentions. If we don't rise up and do something, guess what? Evil will pick what kind of country we have. Do you want evil to, to decide what America is going to be like in the days to come? And how you should live? See, if, if we're uninvolved with the, this natural realm, people, we become feckless and weak, and what happens is evil flourishes. Yeah. Now, how, where's, where's the balance in this? The Bible says in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. We're not to be doing this thing out of arrogance and pride. We were talk, t- talking about that yesterday, and we're not to be doing... Uh, forcing things with an unloving, unforgiving, oh, Lord, just get him. I can't stand that guy. (laughs) That's prayers of witchcraft. It's not going to get much higher than the ceiling. We've got to operate in love and humility like Jesus, but the, the byproduct of humility, we shared it yesterday, one of the major byproducts of humility is courage. When they translated my book, Humility, the Hidden Key to Walk in Signs and Wonders, into German, the word for humility is demut. And I was teaching on that, and a German professor who taught at the university in Würzburg, uh, Germany, came up to me and said, you know what? Did you under, do you know that that word demut, the, the root of that word means to serve with courage? And then I began to look at that. Yes, that's exactly. Jesus had a backbone. He had a spine. Like Billy Graham said, when the spines, when a spine is stiffened, what happens? Other people, their spines start getting stiffened. We start rising up. But if we just say, hey, no, I'm just going to accept whatever will be, will be. And guess what? Evil will decide for us. That's not a good thing. Not a good place to be. So chapter 14 and the other chapters we talk about, it's not time for a mechanical response. Turn to... Uh, Joel 2, 23 through 29. I want to try to wrap this up here. Um, you look at how this nation was founded, people. They say our, our forefathers were oppressors. And we have this cancel culture going on trying to cancel what they were about. They were some of the most humble. They tried to set the oppressed free. They weren't... They, they loved... 
And, and they were brave. The first great awakening took place right after George Washington. He was shot by a, a sniper. And he had nine bullet holes in his vest, but not one bullet penetrated his vest. Miracle after miracle while George Washington was serving on the battlefield took place to bring about this godly nation. In fact, when he got shot nine times, what happened, Samuel Davies shared about that, and it became the first great awakening that hit the shores of America right after George Washington. What happened to him as he was marching towards Pittsburgh? I mean, and if you read, I've got a book back there called The Damaging Effect of the Religious Spirit in Politics and talk started out with some history of how this country was founded, the bloodshed, how our, God, our forefathers stood up. They understood what it was to be humble. They were not oppressors, and they understood what it meant to have courage when all the odds were against them to give us this great nation. The second great awakening came from Charles Finney, and he says, if we don't get involved and have a moral stand and do what's right when it comes to areas of government, our land will be cursed. Mm -hmm. This guy was so bold, the second great awakening took place. He would walk into towns and without even opening his mouth, hundreds of people would get saved. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're on the verge of a great awakening. We're ready for the third great awakening. People, if you'd only could say, Lord, open my eyes to see what's going on in the invisible realm, you'll see what's happening right now is heaven is coming down. It's getting ready to invade planet Earth. Right under that is the demonic realm, and they're feeling the pressure. The demonic is feeling the pressure, and hell is raging, and hell is trying to get us distracted and focused just on the physical realm, just on the things that are happening around us. So we get sidetracked, we get full of fear. I'll tell you one thing. It says 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. You either have a choice to walk in fear and you have no power, no love, no sound mind, or you choose to walk in, uh, in faith, which you'll have power, love, and a sound mind, and fear will be gone. Amen. It's your choice. All eyes on Jesus. But we're going to read from Joel chapter 2, verses 23 through 29. I want to talk about many people say that in these last days, what's happening right now, is because there's going to be a great falling away. And then they quote the scripture. 2 Thessalonians 2.3, out of context, by the way, to get that theology. Here's what it says. How do people come up with this great falling away that we're, we're headed for dark times? This is, this is what it talks about for the church in the last days. It says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will will not come unless a falling away comes first and that man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. If you read this in context, it's talking about how the Antichrist will come during the tribulation period. We're not there yet, people. And by the way, do you see the word great in there? It says, unless there's a falling away. In the original Greek, it can actually be read this way. It says that day will not come unless the falling away, and the Greek word also could mean departure or 
caught up. What does that mean? That means something to do with the rapture? I'm not an anti-prophecy scholar, but I think departure could mean that, unless there's a departure. Notice what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1 about the last days. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that, and says in the latter time, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to, to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. It says some will depart from the faith. It doesn't say there'll be a great multitude in these last days departing from the faith. It says some will. That doesn't sound to me like a great falling away. Let's read what the Bible says. I don't believe it's a great falling away. I believe it's a great awakening, people. And this is what I want to finish with to encourage you guys here. Joel 2, 23 through 29. Be glad then, ye children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, who hath, who hath... I'm reading from the King James Version, by the way. He hath given you the former rain moderately. He'll cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, the latter rain in the first month. The floor shall be full of wheat. The vats will overflow with wine and oil. I'll restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, the palmerworm. My great army, which I sent among you, shall eat in plenty. Be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord your God that has dwelt wondrously with you. My people shall never be ashamed. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and none else. My people shall never be ashamed. It shall come to pass afterwards. I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and handmaidens. In those days I'll pour out my spirit. Well, on the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and quotes from Joel chapter 2. And he says, if you read the Amplified, Joel, uh, Acts 2.16, people were wondering, you know, what's going on here with you guys being so drunk early in the morning and all this stuff that's going on? He said, this is the beginning key. This is the beginning of that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So let's go back to that. Because there's something really unique about the book of Acts. It's a very different book. All of the other books in the Bible have an ending in the New Testament. But the book of Acts, you get to chapter 28, it's action-packed, great things happening, and then it just abruptly ends. Why is that? Because you and I, in these last days, are going to be writing chapter 29. It's already happened. Chapter 29, 30, 31. We're writing the second half of the book of Acts, people. Now let's see what this, these verses... Let's just pick them apart a little bit here. It says he hath given you the former rain moderately. What does that mean, moderately? I'm somebody that really understands what it moderate is. When I was in high school, I had very moderate grades. I got called into the principal's office a number of times. So I know moderation, a mo being moderate, it, nothing great. C's, D's, at least you pass. You, you make it through, right? My wife was the number one student in Uttar Pradesh State, a population of over 140 million people when she was 16 years old. She passed that on to my daughter who graduated in Reading from Simpson University, magna cum laude. I'm in top of her class with honors. I said, what's magna cum laude? She said, you don't know that, Mark? No. 
She didn't get that from me. She got it from her mom. But so I understand moderate. And this is what, what the scripture's saying here. It says, the former rain came down moderately. And then later on, it says, the former rain and the latter rain comes down. And it says, the floors, which are the nations of the world, will be full of wheat. Jesus talked about the wheat and the tare. Wheat referred to those who are ripe and ready for a harvest. The vats are the vessels. And it says the vessels will overflow with wine and oil, which is a type of the Holy Spirit. To understand this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, people, we have to understand something about Israel's planting season. We have to understand about the, the, la the former and the latter rain. In the fall, Israel plants their crops. The former rains come down, water the earth. And it says here, it was a moderate. Then later on, right before the harvest in the springtime, what happens? The latter rain and the former rain come down and it's overflowing. You look at the book of Acts, the shadow of Peter walking by people and they're instantly healed on the street. The dead being raised. I mean, the apostle Paul, you think he was long-winded? I mean, you think I was long-winded. What about Apostle Paul? He's two, three in the morning. Guy's sitting three stories up listening to him, and he falls out of the window, breaks his neck. He's dead. They go down, you know, and raise the guy from the dead, and all of a sudden they could continue church better than coffee at two, three in the morning. Just raise somebody from the dead, you know, and then continue with church. But, I mean, talk about the miracles. They were never ending. And you know what? That was just a was a small foretaste, people. Peter said, this is just the beginning of what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. There's coming a time in the last days, which we happen to be in the last days, where the harvest will be so great, it'll bring about a third great awakening to the shores of America. What happens in America, I'm a missionary, but what happens in America greatly impacts the rest of the world. I see what happens in D.C. affects India and Nepal. Why do I contend for my nation? I'm a missionary. I, I'm contending for India and Nepal. Why am I contending for our nation? Because I'm also contending for Germany and Austria and Switzerland where we spend a lot of our time doing mission work. You know why? It's going to be overflowing, people. It's going to be overflowing. And let me finish with this. Right when I came back from our last trip to India and Nepal, it was February. And we we're getting ready to head in March, head to Germany, Austria, and Switzerland for more ministry. We had a busy schedule ahead of us. And I remember getting out of the car, it was a few days after we got back, and this drops into my spirit dry run and I'm thinking as I'm heading into the gym dry run what's that about you know week later the corona travel band came into effect I knew exactly what this dry run thing people it's a dry run for the antichrist this is not the time this is just a dry run to see how compliant will we be I mean look at what the world how they were locked down People, this is not the time of a great falling away. It's a time of a great awakening. And here's something about Marxism that has been setting itself up for decades in our country. In fact, if you look at communist China in the 1960s, what Mao did and the very things that he did 
we're following it to the T here in America right now. Are we going to sit back and let evil take over? Think about this. Here's what Maoists do or communists do or Marxists do. They push until they get everything they want. They're very proactive. You know what the church tends to be because of the influence of Greek philosophy on Western Christianity? We tend to be reactive. We wait till the ship is sinking. Once the ship starts sinking, we start getting angry and mad. That's what's happening right now. But so much stuff is happening right now, I think the church is starting to get a backbone. And the church is rising up. And I'll finish with this last testimony because it really hits home where we are right now. In May 2017, my wife and I were really excited we were going to go back into Himachal Pradesh, India. It's a state where the Hindus believe all their gods originate. Only one Christian per 1,100 people. We've seen thousands of people come to Christ. In fact, the Hindu militants have made videos about us saying we have to shut these people down. Look at all these churches that are coming, springing up. They're talking about our ministry and other ministries that were coming into Himachal Pradesh. So we were headed back there. We had tremendous favor. We've seen tremendous fruit. This is where the Lord appears the most in our outreaches. Where Jesus appears and angels is, is in this state. And so we were so excited. We had raised many thousands of dollars to do two outreaches. We we're going to this city, Rampur, to start with, and then after that to Jasur. And the chief minister of the state, who was part of the Congress, a secular government at the time, uh, was going to come and welcome us. The chief minister of that state, like the governor of that state, was going to fly in in his helicopter from the capital and welcome us. It was going to be a huge celebration. Um, we brought in pastors and leaders from all over that region. We were excited. Man, God's ready to show up. And we were so excited what, what the Lord was ready to do. Well, we arrived and all hell broke loose. What happened is the opposition party, which is in power now, in most of the country, the, the BJP, uh, the guy who he actually became the chief minister of this state now at present, he wrote lies about us in the in the the capital of India, Shimla. Say there's a priest who's forcing people to convert to Christianity, and he's a spy for Pakistan, and he's coming to Rampur. So when people read that. Instead of us being welcomed, the chief minister flying in, we got welcomed by about a mob, about 500 people marching by our hotel, burning an effigy of me. And I'm asking Sharmila, what are they saying? She says, you don't want to hear what they're saying. <laughs> I'm actually put under house arrest. I'm not able to leave the hotel. Sharmila, who in, was an Indian citizen, and our worship and our, our team, our Indian team, could go to the meeting that night. Well, during the daytime, this mob tried to break down the gates of the hall with clubs and stuff, and the Christians were just really frightened because there's just a small minority there. And they got to the meeting, and it was like a holy reverence and awe. Sharmila and Sam, our worship leader, were doing the ministry that night, and the people were literally shaking, not with fear, but like the book of Hex. The presence of God came down that place, and there was a shaking. They were falling to the ground, and a holy boldness came on them and said, we don't care what these militants are doing. We're going to rise up. Well, I thought, well, 
And they come back and they tell me that. I'm stuck in the hotel room. I'm not allowed to go out. And I'm thinking, okay, next day it's going to be powerful. The mob shows up again, blocks traffic. We get a call early in the morning. Instead of being able to go to the meeting, train pastors and leaders and get ready for the evening outreach, the chief of police comes by and says, pack your bags and leave our town, our city right now. We had to, couldn't even finish breakfast, got our bags packed, come down the stairs in my short and t-shirt, and here's the chief of police waiting for me. He says, you don't look like a priest. You're fit. And I said, yeah, maybe. Because we don't force people to convert to Christianity. I'm not a priest. And my father was a highly decorated major in the Indian Army who fought against Pakistan. I'm not a spy for Pakistan. But he was really nice. But for our own safety, he stayed in the vehicle with us until we got out of town. And here we are leaving that city. I got to do nothing. I never got to speak. We never got to do anything. We, I mean, just one meeting was all that was held. We're praying as we're leaving town, do we go to this other city, Jasur, or do we leave this state right now? Because there was a lot of threats. They're calling for us to be arrested. Um, we felt in our spirit very strong after prayer, get out of the state right now. We left. It turns out a mob showed up in Jasur, and they were ready for us there too. And it's a good thing because at that time, we could have been kicked out of India permanently because of what was going on. So we went back to Delhi. My wife and I are holed up in a hotel room, 105 degrees. We just stay in our hotel room. Instead of having meetings for the next week, we're just stuck in our hotel room. And both of us are thinking, boy, we really miss God. Man, did we miss God. Here we invest thousands of dollars. I don't even get to preach. We don't even get to hold the outreach. We invested the money in Jasur. We never even made it to Jasur. And we're second-guessing and thinking, man, what a, we must have really, we just need to be, we're both talking like we need to be more in tune to the Holy Spirit and, and, and stuff like that. And normally we follow up places we go and we hold events, but because we couldn't hold the event there, we didn't follow up. Last year, we got news out of those places. A mighty move of the Holy Spirit broke out. <laughs> what happened is the Hindus said, what happened to Baba Mark? And they come to the church, and they end up getting saved. The church fills up. They start another 10 house groups after that. Same thing happened in Jasur. Mighty signs, wonders, and miracles, and I never even spoke. My wife says, the most powerful meetings in our ministry is when I shut up. <laughs> It's true. I, I, I can't argue with her there. She's spot on because they have been our most powerful meetings. But let me share this, people. This is a perfect example of my wife and I were so focused on what was happening in the physical realm, we had no idea what heaven was doing behind the scene. And people, we need to be quit being so focused on this pandemic, all the authoritative stuff that's going on, and this all this evil that's happening, a southern border, partial birth abortion, uh, the drug cartels, sex slave trade, what happened in Afghanistan. We can be all focused on all these negative things, and it can be overwhelming. And I sometimes you go to bed thinking about that, and you wake up. It's not feeling too good. All eyes on Jesus. This is a Red Sea moment, people. We're like the children of Israel back up against the Red Sea. Where do we go now? Stand, see, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. 
We've got to be more focused at a time like this, both realms, be involved in both realms, but be more focused on what is heaven doing right now? Amen? Praise God.